0: Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. Hello, this is Dr. Rick Ryman with the podcast for Constitution Day 2020 at South Georgia State College. My focus here is the Constitution in context, specifically how political parties arose out of gaps in the Constitution and how political parties filled in those gaps for better or for worse. Much has been written about the tribalism of American politics today, and how it reflects our clashing identities, the dangers that it poses. But American politics has always been tribal, or identity-based, and never so much as it was in the 1790s, the first decade of our national life under the Constitution. On the one hand, the Constitution was completely silent on the subject of political parties, precisely because the Founding Fathers the architects of our Constitution, did not want them. The word party was not used in the 1790s. Instead, the founders spoke of factions, which gives a good idea of their view that parties were inherently selfish and parochial, not public-spirited in their concerns. But almost immediately after the Constitution went into effect, the two parties formed the Democratic-Republicans, that was one of the parties, and the Federalist Party. Parties were essential if our Constitution was to work because they bridged the separation of powers under our Constitution since the President is the leader of his party in Congress. But here's the thing, Neither party considered itself to be a faction. Each party would say, We are public-spirited. Those other guys are members of an illegitimate faction and should not even exist. How could such a situation not dissolve into civil war in the 1790s? Even worse, the first two political parties were identity-based, The Democratic Republicans were the party of farmers who believed in limited government and state rights, whereas the Federalists were the party of manufacturers, city people generally, and the wealthy who wanted a strong national government that could discipline the states. Given these extraordinary conflicts, how would political parties, which had not been anticipated by the Constitution, how would they not cause the collapse of the Constitution and actually function to make our Constitution work, which is what political parties have done? The short answer to the story is the story of the 1790s and the genius of America, which has always been the genius for compromise. And we see this best in the first clash of the political parties in the 1790s, over the plans of Alexander Hamilton. Yes, that Alexander Hamilton. Let's take a look. Hamilton was the greatest secretary of the treasury and you see this with his three reports reports that were supported by president washington even though in the two-party system that we talked about the democratic republicans were up in arms against hamilton's reports and this ...exacerbated or worsened the almost civil war conditions between the two political parties. And this is what was so significant about the 1790s... ...that no one knew whether the American experiment could survive its first ten years... ...when the two political parties regarded one another as illegitimate. Something that sounds a little bit like what we're going through today... Only it was worse in the 1790s, if that can be imagined. As long as the two political parties regarded each other as illegitimate, there was no guarantee that one political party would hand off power to another if the party outside of power won the White House. That would be determined, as we now know, by the election of 1800. But let's finish talking about the Hamiltonian reports. We talked about the report on public credit, and I want to underline what that is and why it's significant. Hamilton proposed paying the entire debt of both the United States government and the states, paying off the creditors of that debt, the holders of that debt, at 100%. The reason he wanted to do this was in order to, well, for first of all, to create a public debt. Hamilton believed that a public debt was a public blessing, not a curse. And he proceeded to show how it was. And by the time we're done talking about these three reports, you will understand why and how Hamilton was right that a public debt is a public blessing. But let's take a look again at the report on the public credit. Hamilton proposed that the government would pay 100% of the national debt, 100% of the state's debts that were still outstanding, and 100% of the foreign debt. Now, the Democratic-Republicans believed that the foreign debt had to be paid in full. The question was about debt owed to American citizens. The United States government could decide to only pay part of that or none of that, And it could get away with that because these are American citizens who benefit from the government. However, Hamilton said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to pay 100%. Now, the reason why he said that was because most of the debt, which had been in the form of war bonds, was being held by wealthy speculators. So by paying 100% of the debt, he was really binding the rich to the government in a kind of alliance of self-interest. And Hamilton was deliberate about that. He wanted the rich to be beholden to the federal government. He wanted the rich to believe that the government was stable and would pay back its debts, and this was one way to do that. The question is whether this was democratic or constitutional. The Democratic-Republicans thought it was neither democratic nor constitutional because these wealthy speculators had bought the debt from the poor farmers who had originally taken a chance on the revolution at 10% on the dollar. And Madison wanted to be fair with economic policy, whereas Hamilton wanted to be hard-headed. He wanted to do what would be best for the nation's economy, and he didn't care about sentimentalism. And I think Hamilton had... As the better argument on this score. But as we saw, the report would never have passed Congress had Hamilton and Jefferson not worked out a deal in which a small part of Virginia would be sectioned off as the District of Columbia and the national capital would be located there, and we would, of course, now call it Washington, D.C. So this is important because it showed that even when you have two political parties that hate each other, compromise is possible, and the genius of America has always been compromise, something that failed us only one time in our history, namely the Civil War. Now, the report on the National Bank, that was the next step. This was really the question of how Hamilton was going to bind the rich to the government in the future. Because the debt was a one-off. That binds the rich to the government. But how does the government go forward keeping the rich bound to the government? Hamilton proposed a national bank, capitalized at the value of $10 million dollars. According to this idea, the bank, which would be mostly privately regulated, although the government would have a share in the bank as well, would be another way for the rich to be tied to the government by self-interest. The bank could issue stock, and it would be possible for anybody to buy the stock for 25% on the dollar. They would have to pay the rest later. But because the stock was quite expensive, this would probably be bought up by the rich, and that was fine with Hamilton. Because remember, Hamilton wanted rich people to be obligated to the government. If the rich people bought the stock in the bank, they would be tied to the government by self-interest. They could not let the government fail at any time in the future. They'd have to give the government more money if the government was in a precarious position because they would not want to lose their original investment. And therefore, Hamilton wanted to help the class that had the potential or the means Means to help the government, and that was the wealthy. Now, of course, to the Democratic-Republicans, this was unfair. That was always what they said. The government should not be in the business of helping rich people, according to the Democratic-Republicans. And they were right. Uh, it was unfair, and it was also unconstitutional, according to James Madison and Jefferson, and I think they were correct On points, they were practically correct, uh, literally correct. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Congress can create a bank. But Hamilton interpreted the Constitution loosely, which is what we associate with the Federalist Party at this time, a loose interpretation of the Constitution, which they applied in every area. A loose construction of the Constitution means that the government can do anything it wants as long as the Constitution does not expressly forbid the government from doing that thing, whatever that thing happens to be. Whereas a strict construction of the Constitution, that is, a strict interpretation of the Constitution, says that the government cannot do anything unless the Constitution clearly states that the government can do it. Madison and Jefferson were correct that there is nothing in the Constitution remotely indicating that Congress can create a bank. But, Hamilton said, I don't care. It doesn't matter. The word needful or useful is in the Constitution. And furthermore, the Constitution says that Congress may do anything that is needful or useful to promote the general welfare. And he said that the bank was needful and useful to promote the general welfare. And Washington uh, agreed with Hamilton, and he signed the bill into law. And forevermore after this event... The rich have had a special relationship with the American government, and vice versa. The government has provided massive aid to wealthy corporate interests, and we still have this going on today. Whether this is good or bad is a judgment call, and those who think it's good tend to be Republicans, and those who think it's bad tend to be Democrats. So you see this this rupture in our politics, beginning with the report on the bank. Now, the report on manufacturers was his third report in 1791. And Hamilton wanted the federal government to provide bounties to infant industries, as he called them. In other words, handouts, government welfare for small industries that were just getting going. There were no large industries in America. America was predominantly, overwhelmingly, a farm country. And Hamilton knew that in order for the nation to be great, it would have to develop industry thriving industry in competition with Great Britain, which was the greatest industrial power in the world. Only government help would make this possible. And I think Hamilton was right. But let's see what his proposals were and whether his individual proposals were good. He said that there should be a huge tariff on foreign goods He believed that foreign goods imported into this country should be taxed so that that would make them more expensive relative to American products, and that way people would buy the American products instead of the foreign products. The farmers would pay the tax, essentially, because the Industries would simply pass on the uh, tax to the consumer who were the farmers. So the farmers would end up paying for the growth of American industry. But Hamilton believed this was right because industry would make America great as a nation. Hamilton also wanted to encourage female and child labor, In order to give a gift to American industry, female and child labor would work cheap. In other words, cheap labor would help industry advance and rise. Of course, they would rise on the backs of women and children who would be worked to death, according to this plan. So, Hamilton's plan involved some element of cruelty, and the Democratic-Republicans pointed this out. Hamilton didn't get everything he wanted in the report on manufacturers. That that is, Congress did give him protective tariffs, and protective tariffs would be a feature of American history from that point forward. But Congress did not approve the female and child labor parts of the report on manufacturers. But what we see in the Hamiltonian reports are two things. First, we see that Hamilton did create a system that would make the American economy the wonder of the world forever, including down to today. But we also see that he started a trend of government favoritism to the rich and to the well-born and to interests that only were looking out for themselves, but by looking out for themselves, ended up helping the government, as Hamilton foresaw. So Hamilton's plan was not one of equality. It was one of special privilege. But it did help make the country stronger. When the John Adams administration took over from President Washington, when Washington stepped down after two terms in 1797, John Adams practically waged a quasi-war, which is kind of like a sort of war, with France in 1798. Adams, because he was a Federalist, was pro-British and anti-French. And the United States found itself involved in a war on the high seas against france and this rattled Adams, who decided that he would push through congress a series of laws called the alien and sedition act which made it a crime to criticize the president of the united states and to engage in politics against the government in a time of war. Well, there wasn't even a declared war, but even if there had been a declared war, this was going way too far and violating the First Amendment of the Constitution. So the question was, would America's experiment fizzle out less than 10 years after it began? Certainly the rights that were enshrined in the Constitution were being treated like a worthless scrap of paper. And the Jeffersonian Republicans, the Democratic-Republican Party, uh, waged a kind of guerrilla war, not with bullets, but with pamphlets and newspaper articles condemning Adams for the Alien and Sedition Acts. Jefferson himself wrote the Kentucky Resolutions, which declared that a state has the right to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional within its borders. And this is what is called nullification. This is one of the things that would be used by the South when it started the Civil War in 1861. But Jefferson was trying to uphold liberty, not slavery here. He was arguing that the Kentucky resolutions were necessary in order to defeat the unconstitutional alien and sedition acts. So what you see here is that the two political parties were on the cusp of a civil war in 1798. Adams, by the way, did not like Hamilton, and so Hamilton was pretty much exiled from the administration. But as the election of 1800 approached, everybody knew that this would settle the question. Would America continue its experiment? What if Jefferson, the favorite of the Democratic-Republican party, won the election? And indeed, he did win the election. What would happen then? Would the Federalists peacefully transfer power to the Republicans? No country in history had had a peaceful transfer of power from one party to another before. America would be the first if it could manage this. election of 1800, the Federalist John Adams stepped down and the Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson, chosen in an Electoral College tie that was broken by the House of Representatives, became president. It was a peaceful transfer of power, and it suggests that conflict between parties could exist alongside the political parties accepting the will of the people. The outcome of the election of 1800 Suggested that there was something special about the United States, namely its genius for compromise. All elections since then have followed the pattern left by this election. But Benjamin Franklin had no illusions that democracy was a perpetual motion machine that would always go of itself. In 1787, he answered a woman who wondered what kind of government the framers had established. A republic, madam, if you can keep it. The question remains just as relevant today as when Franklin raised it in 1787. When the Constitution was adopted, America was not a democracy, and really not even a republic. Women could not vote. African Americans were also barred from voting in most states, along with Americans under 21, and anyone with too little property. The original Constitution also provided guarantees for slavery. But the Constitution is a living document, and today the United States is a democratic republic. We have steadily grown more democratic as more and more categories of people have been granted voting rights, and the Constitution has never gone back one inch after it has gone forward. May everyone who can vote Show their respect for this oldest constitution in the world by voting for the candidates of your choice this coming election day. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Rick Ryman.